Welcome to Federal Insights, sponsored by Okta. Here's today's moderator, Tom Temin. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guest today is Sean Frazier, the Federal Chief Security Officer at Okta. Sean, good to have you with us. Always good to be with you, Tom. Good to see you. And let's talk about digital delivery of benefits and services. This is on the lips of pretty much every federal agency. I mean, we've got this customer experience drive and a better cybersecurity drive. Somehow it all seems to come around to the idea of a seamless experience, which itself comes down to ID. Uh, Tell us what the situation is, how you see it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the way I think about this is nothing really happens until someone tries to access or log into something. That's why identity and access management is so important. And I think over the years, we've kind of treated um, security and user experience as orthogonal things. We've, we've thought of them as being different things when the reality couldn't be further from the truth. They actually are kind of two sides of the same coin. You can't have a good user experience unless it's a secure user experience for obvious reasons. I mean, you certainly don't want um, attackers having access to your data because that's not a good user experience to have to figure out how do I you know, let the authorities know, how do I protect my information, how do I keep my information private? So having strong security constructs is actually part and parcel to good user experiences. I, and when we talk about security, I always talk about it, you know, user experience is the unwritten rule of security, which is almost the requirement rather than kind of the detriment. Then what should agencies do beyond what they're doing now? I mean, pretty much they follow the standard organizational approaches. You put in your username and then you create a password. Their site remembers that. Sometimes if it's sophisticated, it will require you to re-authenticate in some manner if you come in from a different IP address. You know, I think, yeah, I think agencies should really be focusing on, um, you know, how do we get away from the password? And there's a lot of good technology over the last handful of years that has helped us do that. Because that has been one of the challenges for a lot of government agencies is that inside for my employees, I've got really strong um, identity proofing. I have strong access and user experience on management. With a smart card, we can't do that to citizens and we can't do that to the public. So the public can't use smart cards. I mean, they could, but it'd be very expensive infrastructure for us to stand up, be very cumbersome. People like my mom would lose a smart card every every week and you'd have to go through the process of, of reissuing a smart card to her. So we need to kind of move towards and adopt the open standards that are happening in kind of open banking and with consumer services on ways to get rid of the, the password and make better user experiences using the technology that is available today on the consumer side. So using your smartphone, using a biometric, using things like FIDO2, which is an open standard around identity and access management. And we have to really start getting away from the password because the password really has only been um, you know, putting all the onus of security on the end user by forcing the user to have unique passwords. Always change your password. Don't reuse your password. Um, and this is really, it, it, we were kind of you know, hit this space of password fatigue where users are just tired of it. So they're writing it on sticky notes. They're using the same one for banking as they do for Gmail, as they do for their business logins. So we have to get away from that. We have to deploy secure, you know, strong, secure, single sign-on. And we have to leverage these technologies that people have in their commercial world to get rid of that darn password. And let's back up a moment up the stream here and talk about verifying who someone is in the first place. And then you let them have this passwordless, frictionless type of logon. But first there is verifying that people are who they say they are. And that's a big, can be a big challenge. It can be a challenge, but it's it's super important because if you think about the, the, you know, kind of the world we find ourselves in two years after the pandemic or a year after the pandemic, where folks have gotten access to people's, uh, um, uh, accounts for whether they be uh, unemployment accounts, benefits, or these kinds of things, and actually got access to, to real credentials, but they're not the real people. Identity proofing is a super important aspect 
but it also has to have less friction for the user. So we can't uh, you know, layer on an identity proofing solution and require that user to go through all these steps and then lock them out of it and then require them to go through all more steps again if they have to, to do that. So we have to be able to, again, build this online. So this whole kind of online concept, doing it remotely or over the wire, if you will, um, all that stuff has to kind of be built in. And the retraction of that or the, the resetting of that has to be built in online as well. So if I forget my you know, password and I need to go through that, I can't go through some kind of manual process. We've seen that over the last couple of years where companies do identity proofing. I've forced users to go through kind of these, this Herculean amount of process just to get access to their identity and the attackers didn't have that same friction. So we need to reverse that. Attackers get the friction, users don't. And how could that work then? Give us a sort of walk us through the technology chain for accomplishing that. So a lot of this, again, kind of shows up in some of the technology companies that we work with day in and day out. A lot of the organizations that know people working in banking, uh, folks like LexisNexis, folks like SoCure and these technology companies that they kind of do this for a living. They've got a kind of an anti-fraud component to what they do as well. So they're kind of looking at the web. They're looking at the dark web. They're determining who some of these bad actors are. So they're kind of reducing the friction by identifying these bad actors ahead of time so the users don't get kind of put into the mix with the bad actors. So making sure that these, and these are all companies that are kind of born on the web, technology companies that leverage all of these different repositories of user-proofing information. And they do that at the time of request and time of need. And then if the user forgets something and needs to log back in, they don't add undue friction, but there's a little bit of friction so an attacker can't go through that process as well. Interesting. Yeah. So with respect to those companies that you mentioned, they have a lot of data about people. And then it sounds like government should avail itself of that data in a commercial, just as another commercial customer, because that's a good way of triangulating in on someone that they are who they say they are. Absolutely. And, and that, that applies to leveraging a technology like Okta, which, you know, we provide the strong signal sign on the multi-factor authentication. We, we wire up the FIDO2 authenticators that users can use. And we layer in and can work as, can think of as kind of this big identity API in the cloud where we can leverage in these different technology proofing organizations. Another good example of one that the government uses is login.gov. Login.gov is also a partner of Okta and they're providing some of that same capability to, to citizens for government agencies. It's amazing. Not every agency has gone to login.gov. More and more of them are. Tell us a little bit about login.gov, how it works exactly. How do so you basically, yeah, so, from login.gov. <laughs> so it's very similar to a lot of these other technology companies where you would, you as an organization or, or an enterprise would want to, you know, uh, interact with your consumers, your constituents or your citizens, and you would want them to be able to do that securely and strongly. And so they would leverage and enroll into login.gov and then login.gov and then pass that authentication back into the system, which might be using Okta or some other identity and access management solution. Our big philosophy here is it's all about choice. So you certainly can use login.gov. You can use one of the other folks that I mentioned. And, and by the way, you probably could use one that's off the shelf that I haven't even heard of yet, because our philosophy is being able to be API enabled. So that way, the next latest and greatest technology capability that comes out, we can just adapt to that. And there is a advantage then in using a cloud hosting type of setup for this, correct? Rather than trying to have the agency put it in its own server. Yeah, there's, there's always a benefit to that. And, you know, everyone kind of, it talks about cloud services as being more about cost. To me, it's more about focus. It's allowing the agencies to focus on what they do for a living and not become an IT shop and focus on you know, their IRS. You, you have citizen services you deal with. Your, if you're Social Security Administration, you have citizen services that you deal with. That's what you do for a living. You're not an IT organization. So it's a matter of focus from that perspective. It allows you to focus on your core business 
And I always tell folks, it's easy to build a thing. It's, it's hard to maintain a thing. So if you go build this thing for yourself, 18 months down the road, 24 months down the road, you've got to maintain it. You've got to update it. You've got to patch all the vulnerabilities. So the, your, your legacy tale of things you, you are responsible for becomes longer and longer. And again, it takes away money from your core services and what you do for a living. Yeah. And then walk us through the idea of multi-factor from the cloud. What forms can that take? And maybe describe how it's not just a substitute for a password. In many ways, it's almost like a temporary password, but yet it's also coupled with another factor, which might be something that you own that you uniquely have. Yeah, so I look at multi-factor authentication as almost a stopgap to get us to where we need to be to kind of what I talked about with a passwordless future. Right now, it's a requirement because you can't just rely on the password. But not every multi-factor authentication is created equal. And, and again, we want to provide choice. So, for example, in, in emerging countries where they don't have smartphones or are not a large population of smart, smartphones, maybe SMS-based multi-factor is great, even though it's not the most secure method available. And then you work all the way to the right of that spectrum, the most secure and, and you know, certainly supporting a phishing resistant factor, uh, which is called out specifically in a lot of government regulations, you know, things that, that prevent phishing, whether that be U2F, which is FIDO, or whether that be WebAuthn, which is FIDO2, um, those are important as well. So we want to make sure we support all of those, but we're always leaning towards the phishing resistant factors because as we know with attackers, so they always kind of move up the stack. So what, now if we kind of solve the password problem by adding multi-factor, their next level is to try to attack multi-factor. So we have to be able to provide a stronger multi-factor, which is that phishing resistant capability. Yeah. Explain a little bit more about phishing resistant because phishing depends on someone voluntarily doing something. And so how do you protect people from voluntarily doing something that looks really realistic? Yeah. And that's why you've got to take the, the attacker out of the middle of that conversation. And that's what phishing resistance does. Because even if you use... SMS-based multi-factor, which again, it's better than nothing. And a lot of your banks will use that. A lot of people use that in their personal lives. The attacker can still fish the multi-factor. So they can either, um, they can get that token, they can get that number, they can put it in, pretend to be you. So what the phishing resistant does is it ties the, the multi-factor process more closely to the user. So a good example of that is WebAuthn, where I've enrolled my fingerprint on my MacBook. It requires me to put my fingerprint on my MacBook to do the multi-factor. An attacker can't do that. Right. So it gets back to the something that is uniquely you. And it sounds like maybe biometrics could almost make a comeback in this type of uh, scheme. It already is. If you look at what Apple and Google and Microsoft and everyone's doing with WebAuthn over the last couple of years, biometric is the protection mechanism for this anti-phishing. So if you look at kind of where the future is headed with Touch ID and Face ID, biometric is making a big comeback. So how would this work in practice? Say someone sends, you know, some group and Russia or whatever sends an email blast that says, hey, you know, your credit card at Amazon has been turned down. Please re-enter your credentials and someone's going to fall for it. Might be one in a million, but that's all it takes for payday since it costs nothing to do the email. Then how does the anti-phishing mechanism work in that case? So the way it works is they send me an email. Not there. Yeah. So they, they send me an email saying, click on this link to put in your password and I don't have a password. So I click on that link and it says enter your password. And I think, well, I normally log in by putting my thumb, my, my thumb on my, my fingerprint reader for WebAuthn. I don't even have a password. So I don't know what a password is. I can't enter anything into this site. And if the attack, conversely, if the attacker comes at the, at the site and tries to log into it, they don't have my thumb. So the first thing it's going to do is prompt and say, hey, Sean, you need to log into this site and you typically do it with WebAuthn. Here's a prompt for your thumb. They're not going to have it. 
Right. Okay. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> and so therefore they can't get to any of the back end services that, that are, that, that people think they're trying to get. Yep. Uh, in this case, it belongs to the phishing attack launcher. Exactly. So attackers will always move around again. Attacking is a business. So think about this as the, like you mentioned, it doesn't take a, a lot of resources or money to stand up a phishing site. And a matter of fact, you can go download one. You can download a phishing kit, uh, you know, a phishing kit for dummies off the internet right now. And you can turn around and fish people. A lot of people do this, but the attackers will be forced to move upstream and become more sophisticated. We have not forced them to become sophisticated because we always relied on this password as being the thing that, that stops bad people from getting access to good data. When there's no password, we're going to force them to move, move on to more creative exploits. All right, let's take a short break and continue here. After this short break, my guest is Sean Frazier, the Federal Chief Security Officer at Okta. I'm Tom Temin. This is Federal Insights, Modernizing Citizen Experiences with Cloud Identity, sponsored by Okta here on Federal News Network. The executive order on cybersecurity is a big step towards securing our nation through zero trust. It starts with identity, and Okta leads the way with a modern FedRAMP-authorized identity cloud that supports NIST, CISA, and other zero-trust standards. Okta centralizes identity and access, delivers strong multi-factor authentication, and integrates all your technologies with a vendor-neutral approach. Learn more at okta.com forward slash fedzerotrust. That's O-K-T-A dot com slash fedzerotrust. Welcome back to the Federal Insight Series, Modernizing Citizen Experiences with Cloud Identity, sponsored by Okta here on Federal News Network. My guest today is Sean Frazier, the Federal Chief Security Officer at Okta, and I'm Tom Temin. And Sean, before the break, we were talking about the idea of multi-factor and anti-phishing techniques being an interim measure, better than the old username password problem, which is just a continuing to persist. But you said multi-factor is really en route to a better, more frictionless and more secure type of mechanism somewhere down the line. How exactly would that work and what does it look like? You know, so yeah, it's really the bridge from kind of where we were in the past with relying on passwords solely for authentication and where we want to get to with having passwordless authentication. And, and I always point back to kind of my life inside of Okta and the two years I've been here, uh, we released a technology uh, kind of eat our own dog food in the beginning, before, you know, when I first started here uh, called FastPass. And FastPass is really a, a streamlined authentication mechanism for us as the workforce. So I've always used a biometric or used a web authentic authenticator as in my business life at Okta. So I've always had this kind of frictionless user experience. So it logs me into my single sign-on. If there's a, an app like Workday, which is my HR application, which I have access to my employees' data, then it might step up my authentication to another login. Maybe it's going to use a YubiKey at that point, or maybe I can just use WebAuthn again, but I have to re-auth um, to that process. Whereas if I log into our recognized site to recognize some of my great coworkers, it doesn't necessarily require me to re-auth. So it's something where it's just kind of logged in and, and less, unless something drastically changes with my posture, because this is the other piece of this too, is it's this concept of continuous authentication, continuous validation. As long as my posture doesn't change, meaning my device is in the same place, I'm logging in the same way, all these things look exactly the same, then it's not going to prompt me for anything. But if any of those things change, then I can add friction. So so in the back end, I could say, well, if the device you know, ends up being in, in Europe and I almost never go to Europe, then maybe I'm going to prompt Sean to authenticate again. So this ability to have this kind of continuous authentication, continuous validation as part of that secure single sign-on and passwordless solution, it's critical. And does all of this require a smartphone? 
Um, no, as a matter of fact, this is built right into the primary authenticator. So at this point, I'm just using my MacBook. I'm using Touch ID on my MacBook to do this. It doesn't require an external device to do this. I can just do this all from the, the encompassing access point that I'm using. Right. So you don't need, say, a token, a physical token to plug into a USB port, that kind of thing. Not necessarily, although I can use that. So again, if there is a privilege account access, so for example, I've got to log in as an admin to a system, and I very rarely do that because I'm not really smart enough to be an admin. But if I did, someone could issue me a secure token like a PIPS validated YubiKey, I could plug that in and use that for some use cases. But for the rest of my workday, when I log into different things like email and, and uh, the landing, which is our internal internet site, I'm just logging in using what's built into my laptop. And how could this be turned facing outward, this architecture that you've described, say, for veterans to access services at Veterans Affairs or people on Social Security, whatever the case might be, but it's the same basic issue of your account, your benefits, your interaction with the government. Tax administration is another one. Yeah, and, and the beauty of it is, is this is technology that's built into almost every commercial endpoint that folks would potentially use. And that's been one of the challenges traditionally with with uh, citizen services and DOD specifically. So when you're recruiting someone, they don't have a common access card, which is the common way you do strong identity proofing and strong access uh, identity and access management. If you're dealing with retirees, they don't necessarily have a common access card, which again, the, the options have been in the past, use the common access card to use a password with nothing in between. And now we're at the point where all these, these endpoints that are, you know, you go, go to Best Buy and buy an endpoint, they all have this capability built in. So you can just go buy it right off the shelf. And you can provide comparable security and ease of use services using WebAuthn to these constituents. So for example, if a retiree needs to log in to get VA benefits, they can, they can enroll that process. You would do some identity proofing on the front end using a technology that does that. The proofing is, is good. And at that point, that account lands in Okta, and then they can just use their fingerprint to log in. Right. And just to play devil's advocate, what if there's no fingerprint reader on a person's machine? And that's where you have options. So again, if you want to issue them a token, you could do that. If there's no fingerprint reader on that machine, you might um, step up to something else. And that's where you could do a smartphone. So that's, again, you know, different use cases require different technologies. So if there's no fingerprint reader and you can't do WebAuthn on the access device, you could still leverage a phishing resistant factor on a mobile device. Right. So what about facial? Does that come into the equation? Sure. Sometimes? Absolutely. So I'm on my iPad. So I travel with my iPad, almost never, never carry a laptop anymore. I use Face ID the same way I do use Touch ID on my laptop. So I'm, I'm logging into... Okta services, I have a managed iPad. Managed iPad allows me to log into those things. I use Face ID to, to do my authentication. All right. And I guess the bigger picture here is that agencies need to consider identity as part of their critical infrastructure. Yeah, they absolutely do. And, and that's be, really become in stark relief over the last couple of years. If you look at solar winds and some of the events that have happened, the, the attacks have happened over the handful of years, we've realized, although we really should have known because we've been dealing with this for 20 years, we realized that Identity access management is at the crux and at the, the center of everything, really. So nothing that happens until someone logs into something, but yet an attacker can log in as somebody and get access to the things they shouldn't have access to. That makes identity the most critical infrastructure. And maybe describe for us some of the investments Okta has made to become part of this critical infrastructure. Really, it's an ecosystem in many ways, if you look at it. It absolutely is. And there are a couple of ways we made strong investments. Um, from since the beginning of the organization, we created something called the OIN, which is the Opta Integration Network. We really relied on our partnerships with tech, other technology companies to provide capabilities to our government agencies and our commercial partners as well, um, being able to integrate all kinds of different technologies for the purpose of delivering kind of this secure single sign-on, this, this strong multi-factor authentication, the strong zero-trust security pieces 
And then over the last couple of years, we've really invested in, in the FedRAMP realm where we've had FedRAMP for five years. We just launched FedRAMP High Environment. We just launched a DoD IL4 environment, which is cap connected to the DISA cloud access point environment, specifically for our DoD mission partners. So we built out an, an entire environment inside of GovCloud, which is the most secure environment you can build in, building out critical identity and access management solutions for the most critical uh, use cases and applications. Now, one of the initiatives that the administration has been pushing, and I mean, they all have to some degree, and the Biden administration has moved it along a notch, and that is the idea of a single front door for a government or no wrong front door. It takes different forms, but that requires federation by agencies of, in this case, this critical infrastructure we're talking about, that is identity and identity management and authentication and so forth. What, what does it take for multiple agencies to be able to share this infrastructure such that the person that goes to Social Security can find their way to Medicare? or the person that goes to VA can find their way to whatever they want, the National Park Service. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it's kind of delivering as a service model to become super critical for all agencies to be able to kind of share infrastructure and do all these different things. The, the good news is, is that a lot of the technology standards around identity and access management exist exactly for this reason. So if you think about SAML, you think about OIDC, which is Open Identity Connect, um, these are standards that can be leveraged and, again, are part of our technology, a part of all of our, our competitors' technology, all of the partners we deal with in applications It's part of their technology. This really enables that federation kind of organically. It's also the same way we built out our integration network I talked about earlier. So integrating with over 7,000 different technologies across these open standards allows you to, to basically, if you're an agency, you can almost pick exactly the things you're using. Obviously, there probably are some kind of custom things that you've built. There's always a handful of those, some legacy things that you've got and you've, you've inherited. But chances are, if you're making that kind of modern cloud journey, you know, the technologies you're choosing are already in our integration network anyway, already leveraging those open standards. All that federation exists and you get the benefit of that right out of the box. And would you say there's the opportunity to be more streamlined and efficient in this as agencies try to adopt zero trust and therefore nothing is inherently trusted? maybe that huge bifurcation of technology infrastructure between internal employees and people you're interacting with as clients, customers, citizens could somehow, not in terms of software functions that each one accesses, but in terms of that identity infrastructure, that sounds like it could almost be shared. Yeah, it could. And there's absolutely an opportunity to streamline all these different things. Because as you're making your kind of build, buy or upgrade decisions around technology, a lot of organizations are already kind of making the cloud decisions because cloud and modern kind of mean the same thing. So you're kind of making the cloud modernization decisions anyway. So chances are when you're making that decision, it already kind of builds into the zero trust ecosystem model that we adhere to. A lot of our competitors adhere to. We work very closely with NIST, with the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence around zero trust. And a lot of it's around integration into this kind of collaborative network of technologies that provide capabilities for agencies and also for commercial entities. So I think that's absolutely part of the conversation that folks should have as they're looking at these things is leverage these things to get a better security posture, but also enable that streamlining of technology because that's what's going to reduce your footprint and reduce your, your kind of legacy spend over time. So it sounds like all you need to do is reorient your thinking. The tools are there. Yeah. And that's pretty, you know, when I always talk about zero trust, I talk about it as a lifestyle choice or a mindset shift. It's not about the technology. The technology all exists. Chances are you've already got some. It's really about changing your mindset around security. All right. Good way to end our discussion. I want to thank today's guest, Sean Frazier, the Federal Chief Security Officer at Okta. Thanks so much. 
Thanks, Tom. Always good to be with you. And I'm Tom Temin. You're listening to Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, please visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Okta. Thank you for listening to Federal Insights, sponsored by Okta on Federal News Network.